Now, as Kevin mentioned, uh, in the church, some of us are going through the Experiencing God book or have gone through it. We're encouraging everybody to do this. I know some small groups are and that sort of thing. It's, it's an investment of your time and well worth it. It's going to take, if you went nonstop, about three months. It'll change you in a lot of different ways. And so we're encouraging you to do that. Now, we'll not be um, handling any experiencing God things in the sermon. Pastor Tim will continue that next week when he returns. But we do want to have some testimonies periodically. So Bob is scheduled to come on up and tell us how this book and the things in it from God's Word has affected him and changed him. I asked him not to tell me what it was about, so I'll hear it for the first time, too. So, Bob, would you come up, please? Thanks. Uh, good morning, everyone. Um, several, uh, it was not several, but uh, back July 27th, uh, my grandmother passed away. Um, she was 93, um, lived in pretty much pain from the day she was born in 1920 on an Indian reservation in the UP of Michigan uh, up until her passing. Um, she, uh, towards about the past last six months of her life or so, um, she was in and out of uh, hospitals, um, just really basically failing. Um, and the decision was made by her that she would not go into an assisted living facility. She flat out refused to do it, which meant that the family had to provide some sort of home health care to her. Um, I I put health care in quotation marks because the people that were chosen had absolutely no health care training whatsoever, Um, not even like first aid training. It, it, it was that bad. Uh, however, my father lives in Arizona. My uncle lives in Vegas. No one was close by to really monitor the situation. So that's what occurred. In communicating and talking with my mom, or, or I'm sorry, my grandma, she, uh, we pretty much knew that she was being treated very poorly. Um, up to the point where, you know, when she passed, maybe a week or so before she passed away, the person living with her would pretty much make her dinner, throw the plate of food down in front of her at the table, and go out into the driveway and smoke a cigarette, um, which was very, very painful for me and, and the rest of the family to know that she was being treated this way. But at the time, we really didn't know what else to do. Um, when she passed away, there was this verbal agreement between my uncle and this healthcare worker that she was going to buy my grandmother's house. Okay, not the end of the world because, you know, me being 1,200 miles away was the closest family member. Let's keep things simple. Um, So we moved on from there. The verbal agreement was to the house would be sold furnished. Okay. When my grandmother passed away, my dad asked me what I would like out of the house. And very simply, I wanted my grandmother's coffee pot. That's it. That's all I wanted. Um, And the reason why I wanted that was over the course of time, as Celia and I would go out there, and then later when Robbie arrived, all three of us would go out there, the thing that I remembered the most about my grandmother was her, the smile on her face at late, as she's, you know, 88, 89, 90, and then into her 90s, 
um, that as she's walking down the hallway when she woke up in the morning, there's a fresh pot of coffee on for her, and my family's sitting around her kitchen table waiting for her to wake up. I, I still, to this day, can picture her walking down this hallway. I wanted her coffee pot. That's it. Thought it was simple. No. This woman who was supposed to buy the house would not part with the coffee pot. Said it was part of the furnishings of the house and was threatening not to buy the house because of a coffee pot. So now I'm angry. Really, really, really angry. To the point where I've never felt a rage in me before. Um, I have never asked for a prayer request um, from Jim, Tim and, and the elders before. I did just before the funeral. Not for my grandmother's passing. Not for the funeral. For me to be able to contain my rage and not say or do something that I would regret later. I was that angry. Now, the last time that my family and I went out to visit my grandmother, it was two summers ago, and she forced on us a set of clear dessert plates. Okay. And I'm, where's like, no, Grandma, we don't have room in the car. No, we can't take them. No. I insist that you have. Okay. So we finally just kind of nodded our heads and said yes and said, okay, we'll take the plates just to keep Grandma happy. So we took them. As, I'm, as we're flying out uh, to Michigan, uh, it was right at the beginning when uh, my small group, which Celia uh, uh, and I are members of the Polizzi small group, we had just started getting into the Experiencing God book. And I told Tom that, look, I'll take the first chapter, he can take the second chapter, and, and we'll just go through, kind of alternate times preparing for it. So I'm on the plane flying out to my grandmother's funeral, and I'm looking through the Experiencing God book, trying to figure out, okay, how am I going to start this? How am, how am I going to really be energetic about this? And I get to the page that has the chart that Tim showed last week that showed the self-centered life versus a God-centered life. And all of a sudden, it hit me. That coffee pot was me being 100% self-centered. That's all it was. Plain as day on that airplane. It smacked me like a ton of bricks that here I am trying to be 100% self-serving. God had given me the avenue to remember my grandmother when, through her, he forced those plates on us two summers ago. I didn't need the coffee pot. It was 100% being self-centered. I had already had the plates. And all of a sudden, as I realized that, an immediate calm came over me. The rage was gone. To the point where, as with any kind of family gathering, there's always drama. To the point where my two quote-unquote adult cousins the night before the funeral went out drinking and got in a fist fight with each other. <laughs> and even that just, it was gone. Everything was gone. I, I had an immediate, immediate calm that I was able to handle 
everything to the sale of my grandmother's house, which was thrown together super quickly, um, comforting my father because my stepmother could not make the trip with him, so taking care of him, taking care of my wife, who had become very, very close to my grandmother in the short time that she'd known her, taking care of an eight-year-old boy who really hasn't experienced death. So how is he going to relate? An immediate, immediate calm. And everything just went away because of the message that he gave me through the Experiencing God book on my way out there. It was an amazing, amazing feeling knowing that he had my back. And he always does and always will. Thank you. At any rate, um, I got the call from Tim, the rather tragic call, as, as one can imagine. Um, and I thought, in instances like these, uh, you know, what do you do? You pull something out of the file that's just old hat or, or something like that. And I, I fully believe, and this ties in with uh, experiencing God. I mean, it says later in the book that God uh, speaks to us through his word the Holy Spirit using that word and through circumstances. And this is very <laughs> much a circumstance. And so I thought that what God wants me to do is, what is he showing me in his word right now? And just share that with you. So we're going to be taking just a small portion of scripture and going through that, and then we'll be done. Okay? So if you would, uh, turn to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9. I've been studying on my own. Yes, we went through the book. We gave each other a cupcake when we got done. It's a wonderful experience, but it is, it is an investment, so make sure that you buy the book and go through it and commit yourself to that. Matthew chapter 9. Just to put you a little in context, I've been going, you know, reading through the book myself. Uh, this is in uh, the first year of Jesus' ministry. Uh, this portion of the scriptures is called the Galilean ministry. When he goes up to Galilee and he's doing various things, it starts out with the, the first verses of chapter 9 where Jesus heals a paralyzed person and says, I've forgiven your sins. And then everybody, you know, goes nuts. What do you mean you've forgiven sins? And he says, to show you that I have the authority to forgive sins, uh, you get up and walk. So he gets up and walks, this paralyzed person. Uh, he calls Matthew, the author of this gospel, this book, a tax collector. He tells him to follow me, and he does, leaves everything. Uh, he has various uh, miracles of healing. In the midst of raising someone from the dead, he heals this lady who had suffered f uh, from a hemorrhage for 12 years. It goes on from there and continues with the healing. The, the girl had died, so he raised the, the girl after he arrived there. He heals two blind men. Uh, he heals a man who had been, who had been stricken uh, Voiceless, the King James word uses dumb. I, lo I looked up something and I saw why they use that word dumb. It is, uh, the tongue was blunted like a spear that's been rubbed down. He, he gives him voice again. And then we start with the section that I want to talk about here. Verse 35, And Jesus was going about all the cities and the villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. And seeing the multitudes, he felt compassion for them, because they were distressed and downcast, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, 
The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord, beg the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Uh, Would you join me in prayer as I open the word with you? Father, we do pray that this morning we know you're with us. Lord Jesus, we know the Holy Spirit is present with us. And we have your wonderful, eternal, perfect word in the Bible itself. We pray as we open uh, the word of God that you would allow us to understand, you'd open the, uh, the eyes of our hearts, our minds, illuminate us, that we can understand the great riches of what you're trying to tell us. We pray that I would uh, get out of the way. We wouldn't see Greg up here in all of his faults and foibles. Uh, we pray that my words uh, would not be in the way either. We pray that I could step aside and, Lord, that folks here would see Jesus. There may be some here for the first time, Lord, that are hearing the words of the good news, the gospel of forgiveness through the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. We pray that that would be understood. We pray that what we say and what we do would give you honor and glory and that it would encourage someone uh, to live more like you each and every day until you come. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's take a look at this passage, a very short passage. As we mentioned, Jesus was going about all the cities and villages, teaching in the synagogues, starting out with those that had already known the Scripture, teaching how he was truly the Messiah in Hebrew, the Mashiach, the anointed one, the sent one from God, that he was coming, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. Now, just right before this, he had cast out demons. Yes, there's, there's demons. There's diseases that Jesus healed. There's some, in some instances, there are demons that had caused disease. Not in every instance. Some people have diabetes. Some people are blinded by a disease or condition or a genetic uh, condition and illness, but there are times that there, uh, the demons do cause things. Uh, we do believe that demons are active today. However, there's not a demon behind every bush, just like Joe McCarthy found a commie behind every bush. Uh, I do think, personally, that there was an onslaught of demonic activity on the world in the life of Jesus like never seen before and never seen since then. Why? Because remember, this is God's anointed one, the Messiah who's finally coming. Galatians chapter 4, 4. He's coming in the fullness of time. God sent forth his son. And so what's one of the very first things that happened when Jesus was called to the ministry? Uh, Luke 4, Matthew 4. He was tempted, brought out into the wilderness and tempted by the devil himself. And I think that temptation continued on. And I think that the devil brought, pulled out all the stops. This was the battle of the bulge for him. This was the battle of curse. This was Pickett's charge. He was going to throw everything he could at the Holy One of God, the Messiah, to see if he could just cut him off at the knees. That did not happen. Hence, all the mention of demons and demonic activity in this, the gospel accounts. It still happens today, but I think it really happened then. And, of course, those that were unbelieving said, oh, he does this by the power of the devil. He casts out demons by the ruler of the demons himself, Satan. Jesus went about teaching in the cities and in the villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, the good news, and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. He didn't heal every disease and every sickness. He didn't leave someone in the closet that was still lame and could not walk and and forgot to heal them. He healed in order to demonstrate that he was the sinless son of God who had the authority to forgive sins, by showing it through the authority to heal. 
He didn't come to heal folks. He came to be a sacrifice for our sins and give us eternal healing through the cross. And these next three verses are precious to us. And seeing the multitudes, the crowds, he felt compassion upon them. Why? Because they were distressed and downcast like sheep without a shepherd. I think this is up here. The first thing I wanted to mention was compassion. He felt compassion. I'm going to talk about these items and then go back to them for our own lives. Compassion, what an unusual word when you look at it in Scripture. It's the word, I got it here somewhere. Let me dig it out here. He felt compassion. It's, it's esplaginiste. There's a verb form and a noun, an adjective form. And it has to do with the inner parts. And actually, if you look at the word, you can go back way back to pagan Greek. It goes back to the pagan Greeks who sacrificed animals and gutted them and pulled out the entrails and tried to divine the will of God through the guts. So it's looking at the heart and the lungs and the liver and the kidneys. I don't know if there's doctors present. I don't know if I put them in the right spots. And compassion is about being moved in these inner parts. And in, a, in, a, in a, just a simple way, it does make sense, you know? When you feel fear, tremble in your stomach, when you feel sadness, you can be sick. Uh, the old King James used to use the word in the bowels or the bowels of mercy. And when we were kids, you know. But it's kind of an appropriate example because that's where emotion is. That's what compassion is. It is being deeply moved inside. Um, why? And we'll go, we'll go back to Jesus and this whole idea of compassion in just a minute. Why was he moved? Because what did he see? He saw people who were distressed. He saw people who were, the word's not that common. Uh, when you find it, it's usually used. I think it's always used. It's the same word that's used when people are coming to Jesus and the disciples are saying, don't bother him. When the children are brought, well, don't bother the Lord. You know? Uh, when the centurion wanted a, his servant to be healed, and Jesus, you know, he said, we can come, and, and the centurion said, don't bother coming. Don't, don't bother yourself with it. Don't be harassed with coming. Because that's when you look at other documents, you see, what does the word mean? It's being harassed. It's being bewildered. It's being confused. It's being hindered. It's being beaten up. So I would use the term harassed. I forget if I put it up here or not. That's what the people were. They were harassed. Or harassed. How do you say that? Harassed? Harassed? Bah, whatever you want to say. Secondly, they were cast down. They were cast down. They were thrown down. This word is it's not the same that he normally uses for throw. It's a different word, okay? But every time you find it, it's throwing something down. Throwing down money, the demons who entered people and threw them down. Jesus says these false teachers that come along, and Luke 17, he says, it's better if you take a millstone, you know, like to grind wheat, you tie it on a neck, and you throw them down into the sea. It's being thrown down. It's talking about when... Uh, the words used when Paul was on his uh, voyage and there was a storm and all of that, when they threw out all the cargo and equipment from the ship and they threw down, and then they threw down the egg, being thrown down. This is what the people were. They were distressed. They were harassed. 
They were thrown down. Um, next thing they were, they were like sheep without a shepherd. Now, that's one of these things that, you know, you should take some time and not just read the scripture, but read, to understand it, read its context, read all the history and things about it. Um, you have the chance to go to the Israel and ignore the superhighways and all the modern stuff, but try to, try to, you know, put yourself back in the time of Jesus and, and, and the time of what life's like, because there aren't many shepherds around here. Are there any shepherds? Remember the last time we brought the sheep in? It didn't work so well. And, and unfortunately, in modern days, 2,000 years later, shepherds don't quite, quite equate. We lived, in a sh- we lived in a land that probably had five sheep for every one human being, you know, like whales. And um, shepherds there generally sit in the cab of their Toyota pickup listening to Radio 4. <laughs> so that's not the sort of shepherd you see in Scripture. Anyway, this is, this is, Jesus says the people are like sheep without a shepherd. And sheep are very specific in their behavior. I'm reading. I try to do a lot of reading. I try to I get tired of looking at screens all the time. So I'm reading a, a, a mystery novel. It's in, set in Ireland, and uh, the sh- there's a shepherd who's murdered. It's, you know, it's clean. There's nothing real gory or anything about it. But it centers around his flock of sheep. There's about 26 <laughs> of them. They're all named. And they have to solve the murder. They're solving the murder. And it's, and it's kind of cool because the lady who wrote it puts herself in the mind of a sheep. And you see their real limitations. Sheep are fearful. Sheep aren't that bright. Sheep can't figure things out that well. And they need someone to lead them. And if they don't have that someone, they'll just stand there. They'll just stand there and, in fear and die. Cheryl and I rescued a lamb one time in England when we were living there. And I asked her if she remembered it. The thing got its neck caught in the fence. And it just couldn't get out. It was just standing there. And its mama sheep was nearby going, Meh, but not doing anything because she didn't, you know, have any pliers or any. So she, she couldn't do anything. So we rescued the thing. I had to hold its mouth down and Cheryl unwrapped a wire. And first thing it did was go back to the mama and suckle because we need some comfort. And I thought, where were you when we were trying to rescue the sheep? Well, that was his, her limitation. She couldn't do nothing. You know, she was a sheep. Jesus said the people were like sheep without a shepherd. They did not have a leader. Now, we're going to go back to some of this stuff in just a minute. But he moves on and says this very next thing. He stays with the agricultural theme. But he moves off a sheep and goes on to the harvest. Okay? The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Another area you ought to study if you're doing, like, trying to learn more and more and more and more about the Bible is about farming. Because it is, oh, so much of the scripture has that in there. Old Testament, the Tanakh, the New Testament. Start reading about this stuff. That's called the geezer tablet. That's not like, hey, you old geezer. It's geezer's a place. Maybe you'll visit there someday. That's from, oh, before the time of David. And this is some schoolboy that wrote down a list. And it, te- and it gives the whole agricultural calendar. I mean, you could study that. It's pretty fascinating. And we won't do this today. I think I got it. just gives you all the, all the months of the harvest. And it's a listing. It doesn't give all those notes. But it gives, does give the, the other names and how many months and so forth. And they started harvesting barley in April, and then they, and they 
collected the last of their fruits uh, in the autumn, like oh, October, November, and then they plowed. They had early rains and late rains. They didn't have a whole lot of rain. And so that was very, very important. But the bottom line with the farming deal is it was really, really labor-intensive and critical. Now, I know farming's hard now, uh, but it, this was not driving a John Deere around, okay? Uh, this was... And even that's hard. But, I mean, we're talking sun-up, sundown, back-breaking work. And your life depended upon it. You lived on the margin of existence with agriculture. And here's how they harvested. This is a modern picture. You can tell because there's actually maize or what we call corn in the back. That wouldn't have been there till Columbus. But anyway, this is how they would harvest with scythes. And they would cut the... what. King James calls corn, wheat, barley, grain, and they bind it into sheaves, and as in bringing in the sheaves, you know, the old hymn, they ran, and then take it to the threshing field where it was run over by the cattle, and then winnowed where they throw it up and they separate the actual grain that you're going to eat from the garbage, the chaff. There's a lot of scripture, to, you know, symbolism in all this. At any rate, Jesus moves over to the harvest, and he says, look, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, beseech or beg. He says, beg the Lord to send workers into the harvest. Now, we're going to go back and look a little bit about compassion, Jesus, and us. Compassion really must be important. What is it? I told you a little bit about the, you know, like the, the word context and the physicality of it and so forth. But my question today is, what is compassion? And then I'll get to part B in a minute. Well, first off, what is that? When I looked up, I decided to run a list of the verses with compassion. And, I, and I, there's quite a few here. I think there's 12, 14, or whatever. Every single time, with a couple important exceptions here, this, this word used with the gut, the gut feeling compassion stuff, it's used about Jesus. He had compassion. Or it's used about somebody who's asking Jesus for compassion. Have compassion on us. All those times. Because, you know, the other times are the commands that he tells us in Colossians to put on as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. He lists a few things, and compassion is the first one. And he gives an example in Hebrews about having compassion about those in prison. So what is compassion? Well, whatever it is, it's very much associated with Jesus himself, with the Lord Jesus, who the very biggest item of how he showed compassion by offering himself on the cross for us. Now, he healed people, like I just said before. He didn't heal everyone. If that was his job, he did a pretty poor job because he left a lot of sick people around, okay? He healed to show that he could forgive sins. Because that was his greatest act of compassion. He didn't come to, to be served, but to serve. And to give his life a ransom for many. So some, maybe for some of you, it's the first time you've heard this. Maybe for some of you, you've heard it before, but you've not taken it to heart and mind and accepted it for yourself. God loved you so much. He had compassion upon you. He had the, the feeling in his guts that he gave his own son that to die on the cross, that whoever would believe in him would not perish apart from him forever, but have eternal, everlasting life. 
Jesus was totally human, 100% human, had this in himself. He was also 100% God, totally God. Don't try to figure it out. You can't. The math doesn't work unless you work for, like, the federal government where, you know, 100, 100 plus 100 makes 100. Well, actually, they're more 100 plus 100 makes 500. But um, uh, it doesn't work out. 100% and 100% still 100%. But as God, he had total compassion, too. God so loved the world. God gave his only son that whoever would believe in him, God would give him everlasting life. And if you've not made that decision, do so. Because you don't know what tomorrow, this afternoon is going to hold. Do that. But not only that, God shows compassion in every aspect of our lives as believers. God shows us compassion. So my question is, why don't we show compassion? Oops, got to go back to this one. Here's why we need to show compassion. Because the world is beaten up and cast down. That's why we need to show it. The people that you and I live near, next to, the people that you and I work with or whatever, even the best of them is on the razor's edge of that thinnest thread. We have a society in which we continually work harder and harder and longer and longer and make less money or, let's say, money that goes uh, the least, you know, distance. We have lives that are so full of harassment or harassment and being stressed and being bullied and being torn this way and being told to do that. We pick up a magazine of Better Homes and Gardens and there's... And there's 50 recipes on how to make cheesecake. And then there's 10 more articles on weight loss. You know? We pick up a Cosmo. God help you if you do pick up a Cosmo. Don't pick up a Cosmo. You know, it's like girl porn. Anyway, if you pick up a Cosmo, you know, it's, it's 30 ways to improve your sexual satisfaction and turn you into some mythical superhuman babe and superhuman stud. And, and all these things that you will never, ever accomplish. And so you sit there feeling really, really, I was going to use the word crappy, but there's somebody in the church doesn't like that. But you feel bad about yourself. You feel terrible. I'll never, ever make this. You know? It's like torturing your dog when you play with a treat and they keep coming. And, you know, it's a wonder they just don't land upon our necks and tear us apart. You know? It's, that's, what the, that's what the world is doing to us. You think, you know, and guess what? There's somebody behind it. The first epistle of John says the whole world lies in the hands of the wicked one. You think this is an accident? You think this is an accident that politics is fashioned in such a way? You think it's an accident that, that our media is constructed, whether it be print media or visual media or television? Or this, we, we're open the door to the Internet that provides us so many wonderful things and opportunities but it also provides so much garbage and pressure and stress in our life. So that's why we need compassion, because the world is beaten up and cast down. If you ever see people in sports, whatever, they get their heads down, and you know, you know the game is lost. You've seen the football game, or you've seen the baseball game, and you just see it in their face and eyes. That it's a lost cause. It's terrible. It would be even more terrible on, on the battlefield or something, where you know that the loss will involve their death. 
They're beaten and cast down and defeated and like sheep without a shepherd because they want someone to lead. Why do you think century after century people turn to dictators? Why do you think century after century we turn to these, what we now call, inappropriately, messiahs, kings and dictators and generals that will lead our way, right? Because we want someone to deliver us. And the sad irony of it is, there's the scripture telling us, guess what, gang? It's here. It's free. It's available to you. It is the Messiah. You do have a leader. You do have a king. His name is Jesus, born in Nazareth of Mary, the sinless son of God, who came to earth to give you eternal life. But not only that, to give you a purpose in this life that we may glorify and honor him, to bring others to him for the rest of eternity as we go into the millennial kingdom and in the new heavens and new earth where we'll live forever. This is the shepherd. Jesus himself said, I am the good shepherd, and I lay down my life for the sheep. That's why we need to show compassion. But you know what? We don't. I don't. I was just talking with someone, and he knows who it is, because I was just talking to him earlier, and I said, my first thought is, and I'm led this way by watching some of these films I watched. I'm led this way by watching my news and all that. And, I, and my first thought is, hmm, just shoot the guy, you know? <laughs> and you probably can, you can just fill in the blank whatever situation you're thinking about. The guy running around in upstate Pennsylvania that killed the policeman. Uh, men who abused their daughters. Uh, Bernie Madoff's in the world that cheat people out of billions and leave folks without any, you know, know, string them up. Well, okay, there may be justice in this world where we need to go through the courts and provide recompense and payment. But as far as me personally, is that compassion? And I can tell you, it ain't. But here's the issue and here's the problem. I'm trying to show the compassion. God wants me to show his compassion. God wants to work through me and be compassionate. I can't do it, but God can do it through me. If you ask me for the secret of that, well, come back in a few weeks. If you have the secret of it, you tell me, because I'm working on it like you. But this is, this is the first thing. It's compassion. We ain't showing it. We need to be showing it. And let's, let's, let's add this, friends. We need to be showing it to each other, to each other as believers in the the body of Christ, in this local body, in the greater body, that we show our compassion for others. Now, workers for the harvest. And with this, we'll close. What is the harvest? That sounds like a straightforward question, because, I mean, he switches all of them from sheep to, you know, farming. The harvest is great. The workers are few. There aren't many workers. Beg the Lord to send workers in the harvest. What is the harvest? Well, at one glance, it seems pretty obvious, the answer, and it is. And that is the fact that there are people who have been born into the family of God that belong to Jesus as his children, daughters and sons of him, forever, sons of God. There are many, many, many billions of the world that do not have that assurance. They've not heard the message, or they've heard it and rejected it. They've not heard it and heard it clearly enough to understand what they need to do. That's the harvest. And we are workers in the harvest, and we are called to that. It's not just the Andy Stanleys, the evangelists of the past, like Billy Sunday and 
and John Wesley and Billy Graham. It is you and I as we reach to, out to the person next to us at the office or our neighbors or whatever. Of course, as sheep who are being stressed and harassed and all that and inside on our computers, you know, interneting, sometimes that's the solution itself is that we need to like shut it off so we can go outside and be with our neighbor, right? Okay. Well, anyway, back to my, that's the harvest. Yet there's another harvest too. I see this as kind of the, the harvest, the, the parable of the sower, you know, and in the good soil there was, there was, uh, there was uh, 30 and 60 and 100 fold. The harvest is, is how we honor and glorify God here. Not only sharing the gospel, but sharing how that good news changes our lives. You know, I mean, if you were selling a product, you would want to say, look, of course, this doesn't work for America because if it's cheap, we buy it, even if it doesn't do anything, you know. Oh, look, it's only a dollar. Let's buy one. Let's buy six, you know. But how it should work is, here's a product, and guess what? It works really well. With the gospel, people trust in Jesus as personal Savior, and you're given eternal life. But that's not the end of it. It, it transforms lives. It, it makes you more like Jesus as you, as you conform yourself to the image of his Son, it says in Scripture. Conform yourself to by reading the Word and letting the Holy Spirit work in you. You have eternal life. You have your so-called ticket punched. You're a child of God. You're, you're headed to heaven when you die. You know, those slogans that we use. But it should be much, much more than that. It should change us. We should be different. And I'll tell you what, the world thinks we're different. We are different. But, you know, it's probably not the kind of different that you want to be known as. We should be different. And that's what the harvest is all about. He says one more thing. He says, beseech the Lord. Uh, and the word is, you know, King James. Sometimes it says prayer or whatever. It, says, it actually says beg. It says, beg the Lord. Did I write it down? What it says? Yeah, it says, it says, beg, plead that the Lord. When's the last time we ever prayed that the Lord would send workers to the harvest? Don't raise your hands, because I don't know when I have either. We pray for some condition we have, a physical you know, situation at work, uh, that I can get my car started in the morning. We pray for the, you know, all those things, important things. God wants you to hear your prayers. But when have we prayed that God would send workers out into that harvest? Workers into the harvest. Not just missionaries that get on a boat and go up the Limpopo River, but people like you and I, that we would go next door. That someone in my office who's struggling with the Lord or some issue, and I'm trying to reach out to them, that I would pray that someone actually lives on their street in Levittown or, or Langhorn who's a believer. And, and there's, <laughs> I'm, I'm betting dollars to donuts, there is someone there who will come over to them. And this is what we see with God's divine work. Black, he says, the Lord working through his word, Holy Spirit, through circumstance. Those are those divine circumstances that only God can arrange. Someone coming along and ministering to this person for the sake of the gospel, and it could only be God. Our question is, do you want to be a part of that or not? I hope you do. I think you do. I do. Sometimes I don't have my eyes open the way I should. But let's think about the compassion we need to show and then the worker in the harvest that we need to be. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for this time. I uh, thank you for the opportunity to uh, 
uh, bring your word. I do pray for uh, this occasion that you've given me unexpectedly. Sometimes these things happen in life, and they are really traumatic. We, we don't understand them. So we continue to pray for Betty Jo's family, the Ducanis family, and for Tim as he's involved with the ministry there. We pray that you would touch our hearts with this word. Let it make us more like you this day, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You're dismissed. Don't forget the reception downstairs. <laughs>